most memorable moments of even last century. Things that really shaped history. You know, the first thing I was thinking about was when the newspaper proclaimed the end of World War I. Now, none of you would have remembered that. But you know, if there was someone around that was about 104 to 106, I think there's still a number of centurions, right? Is that what they call them, centurions? Centurions? <laughs> they would have remembered that. That would have been a life-changing event for them. They would remember that. Or September 1939, the beginning of World War II. How many of you remember that? How about December 7th, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Do any of you remember that? Yeah, some of you do. Or how about this, November 22nd, 1963, when John F. Kennedy was shot? Or in 1986, when the space shuttle Challenger exploded? How about 2011? Excuse me, 2001, when, uh, when we were attacked. How many, how many of you remember exactly where you were? Yeah, I, I mean, I just like, it's funny how the, the mind does that. So many different announcements. Unfortunately, in our day and age, there's announcements about everything now. And it really downplays the most important things. But as huge and staggering and widely proclaimed as those modern news events... Each is almost inconsequential when compared to the startling and far-reaching announcement of Jesus Christ's birth, which Mary heard from the angel Gabriel. If you think about it, this is the announcement of all announcements, right? When Gabriel comes and tells Mary, you're, you're going to have a child, and that child is going to be the Savior. He's going to be God. He is King. And we read that in verse 26. It says, now in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That was an announcement right there. Now we need to, to look at this more uh, more careful in, in, in the way that we approach it. You know, sometimes we get very familiar with things and they almost be, we treat them tritely. Like, why are we going to go over this again? But again, I think there's a lot that is, is going to be uh, proclaimed to us through this passage about who Jesus Christ is. This, this is what the world needs to learn. This is what the world needs to know. Again, this announcement was the fulfillment of, prom, of the promises of His coming in the Old Testament. You know, it's interesting. They say there are 350 different prophecies and promises concerning the Messiah. Now think about that. In the Old Testament, 350 different specific promises and prophecies concerning who the coming one would be. 
such as Genesis 3.15 where it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now think about that. A woman didn't have a seed. It was the man. And yet back in Genesis, her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's one of those prophecies. Or in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we see another one. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Or Daniel 9.26, it says, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. And so much about the Messiah and his role in history. And as far as what he was going to do, they thought he was going to be a conquering king. They didn't realize, first of all, he was going to be the suffering servant. Or in Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel. All these different prophecies. I've only given you four out of hundreds. But again, when Gabriel came to Mary, this was the, the, the beginning of the fulfillment of all the prophecies of who Christ was going to be and what he was going to do. Gabriel was proclaiming the beginning of all these promises and their fulfillment. Who, who he was, Emmanuel, God with us, the coming Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High, the Son of David, <laughs> all those different ones. So again, we need to see this passage not with, with eyes that say, well, I'm, I understand that. Can we go to something deeper? But to look at this passage and say, let me see what Gabriel is telling Mary and who Jesus Christ is. Well, let's look at the first part, the messenger sent from God. Again, the messenger is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. It's interesting in Scripture, in scripture that Gabriel is one of only two good angels that's even mentioned. You see Gabriel, and who's the other guy, or the other angel? Michael. It seems that Gabriel is the proclaimer, is the communicator, and Michael is the uh, protector, the mighty one. The one who has power and strength. That seems to be how they are, how they are different. Again, Gabriel is God's supreme messenger who brought the glorious and crucial announcement from heaven. We see him with Zechariah. We see him here. Actually, we see him in Daniel even. He seems to be the one who communicates the message from God, from the throne of God. Because even Daniel 9, when, we're, when you study about prophecy... It is Gabriel who is not making the announcements, making, is communicating the message that God wants even Daniel to know. By the way, let's not get enamored by the angel. You know, it's, it's like the little, the little kid who at Christmas time gets enamored by the box. You ever give a kid a, uh, uh, something and they get more excited about the box and what was in the box? And like, you know, you find him at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, three hours later, and, you know, the Christmas tree is tattered because, you know, you know and, and you've eaten your food and, you know, the house is kind of a mess and you look over and little Johnny's playing with the box. I think sometimes we play with the box when it comes to angels. We get all enamored. He's just a messenger sent by God. Luke 1 says, uh, uh, in verse 19, a few verses back, says this, again, speaking to Zechariah, about the birth of John the Baptist. Look at verse 19. <laughs> and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I find it interesting that it says that I stand, not sit. Only Christ sits at the throne. 
But again, God wants to communicate with mankind. He wanted to communicate to Mary. Aren't you glad that our God is a communicating God? Our God is a revealer of truth. By the way, this is 66 books in one, but it's about God's revealing Himself to mankind. Throughout the Old Testament, He revealed Himself. He revealed Himself, whether it's Abraham or to Moses or to the prophets. Just continue. I mean, that's, that's what the whole book is. Revealing, revealing, revealing. I'm so thankful as I've been studying prophecy that He actually revealed what's going to happen even in the end. Please understand, God wants to be heard. God wants to be known. And God wants to reveal even the future. See, God wants to communicate. But in saying that, let's remember our place in that communication process. Whether it be Gabriel or Christian, this is what our place is. We are the messenger, not the, ori- uh, the one who originates the message. We're just the messenger. We don't originate it. We are the sower, not the source, like Matthew 13 says. We are the herald, not the authority. Herald just means the proclaimer. We proclaim the truth. Hear ye, hear ye. (laughs) But we better not make it up. We better never become the authority. We're not the authority. Do you understand that I have no more authority than you and our only authority is what is found in the Scriptures? So therefore, if you say something to someone about truth, make sure it's backed up by Scripture. In fact, make sure they even see where it's at. Your authority is found in the book. It's not found in the church. It's not found in leadership. It's not found in a title. It's not even found in salvation. It's found in the book. I remember a professor at school was telling, and he was, he was teaching on evangelism, and he, he told our class that he led his friend to the Lord before he himself was even saved. See, because authority doesn't rest in the person, it rests in the truth of the Word of God. So as Gabriel comes to Mary, who Gabriel being the one who stands in the presence of God, he just is the messenger, he's the herald. He is the steward of truth. We, are, we have a stewardship. We're not the owner of that truth. That's what Colossians 1.25 says. The stewardship from God. We have a stewardship. The gospel itself, we've been given it. We need to proclaim it, but we don't own it. So therefore, we're just the guide. We're not the author. We are, I like to think of in food terms, we are the server. We're not the chef. We just serve the truth. We don't create it. God tells us through the word, we proclaim it. And that's all we see Gabriel doing. He didn't create this truth sent by God. Okay, underline that, sent by God. You're sent by God. You're sent ones. Not an apostle big A, an apostle little a. You're sent by God, right? Go therefore into all the world. Sent by God. So again, this is the messenger from God. And I just want you to see it for yourself. You're, you are a messenger from God. You see yourself like that. No, I couldn't do that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and have received the message of salvation, have received Christ himself, and you are saved, you're, you're a sent one. 
That's why Jesus said, you're going to receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive power. Then you'll be my witnesses. And we are his witnesses. And the only question is, from Acts 1.8 is, are we a good witness or a poor witness? Because we are called to be witnesses. You can't stand before the throne someday and say, well, you didn't call me to witness. Acts 1.8 says you have been called to witness. You've been given the Spirit of God as a believer. The question is, what type are you? Messenger from God. How about the second one? The second major point, uh, the servant used by God. Not only the messenger from God, but the servant used by God. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man. By the way, those two key words, a virgin and betrothed. By the way, the word betrothed wasn't just a promise. It meant that Joseph and Mary had a binding promise. It was, it was, it was more extreme than just a promise. You could actually, in that day and age, be promised to a man and then break it. But once it was in the betrothal stage, it was actually considered like a divorce if you, if you broke the promise. It was a binding promise. But she's a virgin. They haven't yet come together because back in that, that day there would be a promise. There would be a time frame between the promise and the actual marriage. By the way, there's a lot of uh, uh, symbolism in that on how we get saved. We get saved. There's a promise. Ephesians talks about that the Holy Spirit is our seal, our, our guarantee. But then as the bridegroom would come back for the bride and take her to his home, so Jesus Christ is going to come back for you if you're a believer in him. And I believe it's going to happen in what we call the rapture. And he's going to come back and take us to his home. So again, this is, this, this is where she's at in the process. She's a virgin. She hasn't yet uh, consummated the marriage. She is not even yet married, but she's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Notice this, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. He he repeats it. She's a virgin. Not only did God send an angel to a small, obscure town in Galilee, which Nazareth was, very obscure, wasn't a big metropolitan city, but he sent the angel to one specific house. He also chose one of its residents to have a major role in the birth of the Messiah. You know, she's a virgin and very young. I want you to get this. She wasn't 25. She most likely wasn't 20. She most likely wasn't even 18. She probably was, most commentators believe, she was probably between 13 and 15. Now think about that. Look around and think about the kids that are in 8th and ninth grade having an angel sent from the throne of God to announce that you're going to be a virgin and you're going to have a child in that day and age. Think about all the stress and all the pressure that would be put on her. She was young. She was betrothed. That meant she was supposed to remain pure until the point of marriage. She had this binding promise on her. And now she was going to be misunderstood by her family and her friends and her community. I mean, think about this. This young girl. 
And yet, look at verse 38. Look at her response. And before we even go any farther, look at this. Then Mary said, Behold, the maid servant of the Lord. She calls herself a female slave, is really what the word is. Dulio. I'm just a slave of God. I'm just a servant of God. In other words, God's will be done. Whatever it is and whatever the, the misunderstanding, if it's God's will, I'm okay with it. I think that just teaches us so much on walking with God. By the way, it teaches us a huge amount to not think that you have to wait till you're 22 and 25 and 30 years old before you're really going to serve the Lord. If you start adding up the, the different disciples and stuff, and you look at the disciples, you look at Joseph and Mary, you look at Daniel, you look at their three friends, most likely all of them were in their teenage years when their big event in their life happened. God used teenagers. In fact, that's, that is actually the entire scope of our snow camp for this year. It's called Do the Hard Thing. The idea is this. Sometimes, I mean, no, not sometimes. Our society tries to push teenagers into this mentality. You don't have to live for the Lord. You don't have to figure out what you're going to do in life. Just take your time at it. Go to college. Enjoy yourself. Maybe when you're 25 or 30, then figure it out. The reality is you can make a lot of bad choices, you can live a very sinful life, and you're not walking with God that whole time. The idea of do the hard thing is start living for the Lord today. And when Gabriel announces to Mary, you're a virgin, betrothed, but you're going to have a child, you know what? You're going to do the hard thing today. And you know how she responded? I'm just a bondservant of the Lord. I'm just a slave of God. I'm just willing to do whatever he wants. Hey, look at verse 28. And having come in, by the way, that word come in has to do with uh, like a friend or a neighbor. That's kind of how it's used. In other words, he didn't, the idea is this, he didn't want to terrify her. He came in, this is the angel, and he said this, rejoice, which is, i.e., be glad, be well. Gabriel sought to bring tranquility and peace into the moment. This was going to be a this is going to be a real hard thing. Let's face it, a betrothed virgin is pregnant. She's young. She may not have the support of her parents, at least at the beginning. Be well. Alright? He just listen, rejoice. <laughs> Think this through. And he says, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. By the way, blessed are you among women, not above women. Not above women, among women. Of the women, you're blessed. Why? You're carrying the Messiah. That's what you're going to find out. But not above women. William Hendrickson comments on the phrase, highly favored one. By the way, that is in the passive. It means it's being worked on. Okay, This is not inherent within her. This is something that she's been given. And he says this. He says, quote, Here, Jerome's Latin version, the Vulgate, which is the, the, the version back uh, 4th century, reads this. And, and this was, the, this was the, the Latin version that the Roman Catholic Church uses. Now, by the way, Anytime I use the word Roman Catholic, or if I say the word Mormon, or if I say the word Jehovah Witness, let's remember, we're just talking about truth versus error. 
We're not here to... We're not here, I'm not here to criticize. I'm just saying, if it's truth, it's truth, and if it's error, it's from hell. Right? Can we just agree with that? Can we agree that error is from hell? Can we agree that error damns people? Can we agree that we are truth tellers? So let's, let's be careful. It's okay to, to point out a particular group and say, listen, this is wrong. This is error. Anyways, but the Vulgate is what the Roman Catholic Church uses and had used for years and years and hundreds of years. But anyways, their translation of this is gratia plena, full of grace. That wouldn't be a bad rendering except for the fact that they wrongly interpret it this way. Mary, you are filled with grace which is at your disposal to bestow on others. Mary, you're full of grace and you can give it to whomever you would like. Uh, Excuse me, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. You're blessed because the Lord has given you grace, not because you have earned it, not because you can bestow it. Another commentator writes this, For centuries the Roman Catholic Church has not embraced that truth. The truth that it was given rather than able to be bestowed. They, they think it's be able to be bestowed. That's why they pray to Mary. That's why they worship Mary. But instead has misled its inheritance, it, those who adhere to it, by accepting the Latin Vulgate's Bible inaccurate translation of Luke one twenty eight. During that time, Catholic commentators, writers, and theologians had propagated the familiar but wrong rendering, quote, Hail Mary, full of grace. That has led millions to accept a seriously erroneous belief that Mary is the source of immeasurable grace which she bestows on others. That is heresy. That is false. That is error. What did Gabriel say? Rejoice, all right? Trying to bring tranquility into the moment. Highly favored one. God has been the one that has chosen to use you. It's His grace. God freely chose to give grace to Mary. We are not to praise her for her inerrant inherent virtue. By the way, let's not go the other extreme though. I mean, in, in saying, well, you know, she was a sinner like us. I mean, she even said that God, our Savior, her Savior, right? She needed a Savior. She understand, we understand that with a few verses later. But let's not go all the way to the other extreme of saying, well, you know, she, she was not a, 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 a good servant of the Lord. I, I, I think this is what happened. She was one who feared the Lord. She was one who was walking with Jehovah. That's why, she, that's why he used her, right? Let's be careful not to put her in the category, well... No, you know, God just picked anybody. No, she was walking with God. She did have worthy character. Here am I, send me. That was her attitude. But again, the favor that was shown upon her was purely grace on God's part. Verse 29, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And he said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You found favor. doesn't mean that you can bestow favor, but you found favor. By the way, every believer in Jesus Christ has found favor before him. Isn't that true? Haven't you found favor with God? He brought you from death to life? You didn't deserve that. 
We hated God. He rescued us. So again, we find the servant used by God. Let's look at the last part. This is really the main point. The son identified as God. We find five specific things. This is a concise summary of who the true Messiah would be. The first is his sinlessness, Jesus' sinless conception. Again, often we call this the virgin birth. And actually, this is so critical that next week we're going to go back to Matthew 1 and look at the virgin birth with a little bit more specificity. More specific, more in... Yeah, break it apart, yeah, whatever. We're going to see it in all its glory. We need to. Sometimes we just, you know, virgin birth, virgin conception. Okay, he wasn't, you know, he didn't have a human father. You realize how much rests on that? If that is not true, everything else is false. Everything else crumbles. And you read statistics, and how many Christians say, well, it's either not important or I don't believe in it. Well, that can't, you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and believe he came from sinful parents. His sinless conception. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. By the way, he... Uh, he gives more, more detail in verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? I've never had sexual relations with a man. How can this happen? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who, who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Please don't go down the very uh, rude and crude road of thinking somehow the Holy Spirit had in, uh, relations with Mary. That's, that's a cult that says that. What happened was exactly how... Do you notice how carefully uh, Gabriel says this? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Very pure. Very perfect. Matthew 1 says... And that which is conceived in, in you, it, or talking to Joseph, is of the Holy Spirit. And you see that, of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. So again, this is really the, 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 the miraculous part here is the virgin conception, not the birth. The birth was just like a normal birth. They're not that hard. It's, God be I'm just kidding. It was a joke. It was a joke. It was just to make sure you were with me, okay? Yeah, the guys were like, uh, the women were like, you know, daggers in the eyes. God became a zygote in the uterus of a Jewish virgin. That's, that's the miracle. As one man said, no other fact in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin conception. The conception must have happened exactly the way Scripture says. Otherwise, Christmas has no point at all. If Jesus is simply the illegitimate child of of birth of Mary's infidelity, or even if he is the child of Joseph's natural marital union with Mary, he is not God. If he is not God, his claims are a lie. And if his claims are a lie, his salvation is a hoax. And if his salvation is a hoax, we are all doomed. Everything rests on this point. That's why even if we were to come back to this every year and study it out, we need to know exactly what happened. 
So, Jesus' sinless conception is the first thing that, that uh, Gabriel announces to, to her. How about the second thing? Second part of verse 31. And shall call his name Jesus. This is Jesus' saving work. Whereas the first talks about his perfection, his sinlessness, this talks about him being Savior. Actually, Gabriel gives a preliminary glimpse of this child's saving mission. He's, he's actually saying this is what he's going to accomplish to the Jew and also to the Greek. He's going to bring you into a new family. He didn't tell her all that. He just says, listen, he's going to be called Jesus. The word Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves. God is going to save his people through this man. Matthew one twenty one, To Joseph, this angel, Gabriel says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call, you shall call his name Jesus. You gotta call him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And actually later, later in, in Luke chapter 2 verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now notice how he puts all those together. A Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord, God Himself. Something that you could not do for yourself, God is going to do for you. We cannot save ourselves, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, right? We could not save ourselves. The works... Good works cannot save you. But the sacrifice of what Christ did on the cross can and does. And Christ is coming to this world as the perfect offering, the unblemished lamb, the perfect lamb of God, who is able to take away the sins of the world. And so really that's what we find out in just the first, just the first verse. He's going to be perfect, but he's going to be called Jesus because Jesus means God can save. God saves. By the way, that is how God is known throughout the Scriptures, the Old and New Testament. God say as Savior. Job 19, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. There Job is looking and saying, God is my Redeemer. God is my Savior. God is the one who can rescue me. Isaiah 45, There is no other God beside me. A just God and a Savior. Jonah 2.9, I... I love this because, you know what, I always remember a man that used to be in our, our uh, congregation years ago, and he would stand up periodically, Jonah 2.9, and say this, Salvation is of the Lord. Who was the man? Fred Falco. Remember Fred? A lasting testimony, though he's gone to be with the Lord, right? Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. You can only have salvation through the Lord. What do you mean? When a person recognizes that they are a sinner and condemned before God under the wrath of a holy, perfect God. And yet, thankfully, a God, the true God who loves, who loves, who loves mankind. And he sent his son, the God-man, the perfect God-man, to be the sacrifice for sinners. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life on this earth went to the cross in perfection and died, not for himself, died for us. And when a person puts their faith and trust in his sacrifice, they are forgiven based on what Christ did on the cross. See, the whole story of the Bible is that 
God loves mankind, but God has sin, and God is holy, and that sin will be punished. Thankfully, Christ came, and that punishment was placed on Christ for those sins. It really comes down to this simple. Someone will pay for your sin. Someone will be punished for your sin, right? Someone will be punished for your sin. You are a sinner. We are all sinners. Someone will be punished. Either it is yourself in eternity and hell being punished for your sin, or for those who receive Jesus Christ, your sin was punished on the cross already, and by receiving him, he becomes our substitute. And that sin was punished, but it was on the cross. And as I receive him, I am forgiven. And I don't have to endure the wrath of God on my life for those sins. Those sins are still punished. Thankfully, they were punished by Christ. On the cross, by uh, Christ took the punishment for my sin. What do I want, to, want you to get out of this point? He, you will call his name Jesus. The fact that God is a saving God. God wants to save people. God wants to rescue people from their sin. I looked up the word Savior in the New Testament. 24 times it appears, always in the context of Christ and God. God is a Savior. God wants to rescue you. Have you been rescued? Have you put your faith and trust and hope in only one person, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, crying out to him, Lord, save me. I can't, I can't save myself by my own works. For by grace are you saved. What? Through faith. It is not of yourself. It is what? It is a gift. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. You see grace with Mary, grace and salvation. Jesus Christ came. It's grace. Well, let's move on. Let's, let's look at his life just a, for a few more moments, the fullness of his life. He's going to be perfect. He's going to be the Savior. Not only that, see Jesus' extraordinary life. He will be great. The word is megas. In other words, surpass, excel. It's unfortunate that we use this adjective so many times, great. Oh, didn't he do great in the baseball game? Didn't, isn't he just a great student? Sometimes by using it so often, isn't he just, she just a great wife? Well, I mean, I'm okay. With, I do have a great wife. But sometimes we forget. That, I mean, he's looking at the Lord. Gabriel, he's going to be great. Okay. Uh, he's beyond anything, anyone else. Extraordinary, magnificent, noble, distinguished, eminent. And however you want to say that. Jesus' greatness is a quality, I, I like how one man said, not merely granted to him, but inherently possessed by him. So not just granted to him he's great, but he, it's, he is great. <laughs> he's the sum total of greatness. You might say, what do you mean great? He's great in his perfection. Like a Hebrews 4, yet without sin. Think about this lived in a sinful, uh, on a sinful earth, never sinned. Went to the cross, never sinned. Died, never sinned. Perfection. That's great. John 1, 4, uh, 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Great in glory. 
great in attributes. And again, we could, we could go on and on how great Jesus Christ is. Why? Because He's the God-man. That's, I think Gabriel is pointing back. This is no ordinary, right? This is perfection here. How about fourth? Jesus' divine title, and will be called the Son of the Highest. This was a title for God. In the, in the Hebrew, God Most High. El Elyon. God Most High. The Son of the Highest. Jesus Christ not only was the perfect man, but he's the God-man. In Hebrews 1.3, you might want to write this down. It says, uh, Who being the brightness of his glory, that's the Father, and the express image of his person. And he uses the word image, it's character. We get the word character. And back then, if, if they wanted a stamp, like let's say you're P, and, and I would have a stamp, and you would take... Uh, Wax, put it on a, a, an envelope that you wanted to seal, and then, and then the character would imp- impress upon that wax, and you would have what was on the ring on the envelope. And so when the writer of the Hebrew says this, the express image of his person, the image is Jesus Christ is exactly like God because, i.e., he is God. Colossians 1.15 uses the word image, but it's actually a different word for image. It's the word icon. He is the image of the invisible God, meaning icon, perfect replica. And then we know, you know from further study that there's three persons, one essence called the Trinity. And he is the perfect icon, the perfect replica, the perfect duplicate. That's why Jesus said in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So this is his divine title, called the Son of the Highest. He is equal with God in essence. He is also equal with God the Father. Like in John 10 where it says, I and the Father are what? One. Or Philippians 2.6, talking about the humility of Christ and also the exaltation of Christ, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Well, you can only not consider it robbery to be equal with God if you were God. You had to be God to consider, because he proclaimed himself to be God. And it wasn't robbery because he is God. (laughs) So that's his divine title. Equal with God the Father in essence, equal with God the Father. And then finally, so now think about how we've done it. He's perfect. He's the Savior. He's extraordinary. He's something that, you know, someone who we've never seen on this earth. That's what Gabriel's telling Mary. He is divine, Son of the Most High. And then finally, He is the King, Jesus' kingly position. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end goes right back to 2 Samuel 7, and we looked at that last week, where God tells David, your descendant, not you, but your descendant, will be on the throne. And this is what he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 So Christ is not only the Messiah, not only the Savior, not only the perfect God-man, but He's the King. It's all wrapped up in Christ. And he's going to return and he's going to reign in glory and power and and majesty and honor someday.
Are you looking forward to that time? Even so, come Lord Jesus. You know, if our greatest need had been information, God would send us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. (laughs) If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. Do you know that? Do you really understand that during this time of the year? Our greatest need is a Savior. I love singing Christmas songs, and I love... You know, all the different festivities around Christmas. But let's remember, our greatest need, your greatest need, your relative's greatest need, your friend's greatest need, your children's greatest need. What is it? We need a Savior. We need to be forgiven. Let me turn to one other passage. Actually, let me just read the end here and then turn to one passage. Look at what's said in verses 37. For with God, nothing will be impossible. After he tells her, tells her, you're going to be a virgin and conceive, he says, nothing will be impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. And that's when Mary says, I'm just the Lord's slave. Well, what I found interesting is that same idea was, was also used in Mark 10. As Jesus is talking about eternal life, And in in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Remember, Jesus takes this young man through and basically says, Are you perfect? And he's going to have to admit that he's not, although this guy is deluded at the moment. And, and, And the disciples understood what was being said by Jesus, that nobody could earn eternal life. And they say in verse 26, Well, then who can be saved? Because if you're saying that you have to live perfectly by the law, who can be saved? Because not by works of righteousness. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. And Jesus said and looked at them and said this, With men it is impossible. You think you can earn your way to heaven, it's impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. I just like that phrase. What did Gabriel say? You're going, to be, you're going to do something impossible. You're going to have a, a boy-child without having a relationship, a physical relationship with a man. It's going to be done by God himself. It's going to be done by the Holy Spirit. But later on, Jesus is teaching about salvation. And as they were considering, how does a person get saved? And he says, listen, you have to keep the law perfectly. And they're like, well, then who could be saved? Jesus said, yeah, but it, it may be impossible with man, but it's not impossible with God. Because what is salvation? Really, what is it's all a work of, of God. That's what salvation is. Salvation is this. Me setting my, my, my anxiety down of trying to get saved by doing good works and saying, Lord, there's nothing that I can... I, can, I can't contribute anything to salvation. But Lord, I throw myself on your mercy. Lord, I can't do it. I am a sinner. I deserve damnation. I deserve condemnation. I deserve your wrath. You are holy. I have, I have gone against your word. I cannot save myself. I can't do anything. I can't even add one, one hair to that process. And then the gospel comes along. And the gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. 
And you look to the cross because you realize that's where your sins were paid for. And you receive him and you're saved. And when it's all said and done, you say, you know, salvation is impossible to man, but it's only possible through God's son, right? That's what salvation... See, salvation is impossible for you to attain if you're trying to do it on your good works. But if you, in dust and ashes, say, I just... I need to receive him and I repent and I believe and I receive. God will do the impossible in your life. If you're a believer, just realize he's already done the impossible in your life. He has brought you to salvation. He has forgiven your sins based on what Christ did. So during this Christmas time of year, let's remember who the Messiah really is. He's Jesus. He's the true Savior. Let's 